Welcome to the Blueprint Interviews podcast, where we explore the blueprint for each of the world's most interesting industries and the careers within them. Ever wonder what it's really like to work on a presidential campaign? What it's really like in the early days of a billion-dollar company? What do you see on an all-night shift in the ER, or in day-to-day combat, or on a blockbuster movie set? What exactly goes into building a 100-story skyscraper? We interview people in the arena and get down to the brass tacks of how they got there, what they do at the most granular level, and anything and everything about their domain. Let's dive in. All right, on today's podcast, we have Rob Quartel, uh, a friend of mine. He is chairman of Entelix, uh, a company that he founded, and he has a very interesting career that we're about to dive into. He served in and outside of the government and the private sector, um, kind of weaving in and out in both. Um, he's played an instrumental role in keeping uh, the, the state of shipping in America safe post 9-11, and he has a lot to talk to us about today. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing fine. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. So let's uh, let's dive in here with your story. You have uh, one of the most interesting careers. Um, let's talk about you know you graduated from Rice. You're you're 22. What are you thinking at this point? Um, actually, I was 23. 23. I did I did uh, a five five years because you know that was during Vietnam. So we were all trying not to graduate. <laughs> so we wouldn't be um, fodder. And, uh, and I had actually, when I went to college, I wanted to be an astronaut, which is why I chose Rice. I'd grown up in Orlando. My father was involved in the space program from the uh, mid-50s. Uh, and uh, what I knew was that you had to be a pilot in those days to be an astronaut. And Rice University um, was really a center for a lot of the uh, the um, Space activities at the time, and Rice fact, is in Houston. Rice is in Houston, and in fact, the Houston, the uh, NASA Space Center is on Rice property. What I didn't realize was that that was a graduate program at Rice, but I did what I could, you know, to get there. And when I, um, so I got, uh, I received a Navy ROTC scholarship. One of the things they would do is teach you to fly. Um, I also liked the fact that I was on a would be on a ship if I was going to be shot at rather than on the ground. So the uh, I went to Rice. I had this career planned out. I was going to do my Navy, uh, four years of the Navy. I was going to uh, become a pilot, and then I would work my way through the astronaut thing. Of course, once I got there, that's when I figured out that Rice – that it was an, uh, a graduate school program, and and uh, number two, I started taking flying lessons, and they tipped me into an aileron spin, and I could couldn't pull myself out, and I decided I would never fly myself. Same way on scuba diving and all what, the rest what of that. An aileron spin. Aileron. So you they tip you over and you start spinning. You know, it's like the uh, okay. things you see when you're in the movies with a plane, and you can pull yourself out if you know what you're doing. But I sort of froze, so. There are a number of things I won't do, take my own life in my own hands. Uh, I won't uh, fly, fly myself. I don't mind flying, and I will not uh, scuba dive. Uh, I had several friends who died scuba diving in college, actually. 
but I drive really fast, and I have a Porsche, so driving, I feel like I can control where I'm going to end up. So anyway, so I went to Rice to do that. thought I had the career planned out, and I uh, that was about the point of the uh, Nixon did the draft, um, first draft um, uh, lottery is what they called it. And so I was just shy of two years in MROTC, about to have to sign the contract for the whole thing. They did the lottery, and my number came up at about 318, which meant they would have to nuke the White House before they ever got to me. So I resigned. And from there, then it was the change. Then my major was environmental science. Uh, I, I uh, worked at the local EPA uh, while I was in school. The head of the environmental science program was the head of the regional office. Nixon had, had started the EPA and pulled together some of the various agencies. And when I graduated, uh, I didn't. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do other than go to Washington because I also liked politics. So I drove home to Florida, and then I drove to Washington three days later and walked into the office of the deputy administrator down on Waterside Drive because I knew he was a Rice graduate and essentially walked out with a job. And so I was that. That was really the beginning of the you know the career. So uh, EPA, I was there about six months and. and in the meantime, I had sort of networked my way around Washington and Republican politics and met uh, several people at the Republican National Committee and at the White House. And and from there, it just sort of pulled me into that orbit. That, that sort of uh, career ambiguity is not something that you see a lot today. You know, the ability of just, I want to go to Washington and then just walking into right. someone's door. Well, you can't do that anyway anymore. And, it, you know, in those days, you could literally pull up to the building. Uh, there were no guards at the front. You could walk up to the administrator's office, tell the secretary why you were there, and 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 if the person was there, you could walk on in and see him. That's that's something to be cherished, I think. You can't, <laughs> yes. can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that anymore. Yeah, now it's a lot of false security. So Right. Yeah. So okay, so you spent six months at the EPA. Yeah. And then what are you thinking? Well, so uh, I liked it, but I wanted to keep doing other things. And about my uh, during the time I was there, it was also during the uh, 1973 oil embargo, Arab oil embargo, and that was when OPEC cut us off. So Nixon declared price controls. Uh, he they had line they had line controls at the gas stations. You you know you could go on the last number of your license plate was determined the day of the week you could go even or odd. So it was inconceivable. In yes, today's it, America. it is. And uh, John Connolly was uh, Secretary of the Treasury, and, and he didn't much like any of those. You know, Republicans don't like wage and price controls, but that was a reality in th those times. And so in the meantime, I had met uh, a guy at the White House who was a White House presidential fellow from – not 3M, but one of those companies, I, I can't remember. But he uh, he invited me to join them at a newly formed agency, the Federal Energy Office, which was operating out of Vice President Rockefeller's office in the old executive office building. So I literally reported in. I quit my job at the EPA, went across town to the uh, FEO. There were probably no more than 50, 75 people in the agency at that point in time. And uh, was met a guy there. The next day, we were all walked across the street to the old to the Winder Building, which is now the the International Trade Building uh, on uh, 17th or 
whatever it is next to the OEOB. And then we, um, and I was put on a task force to save residual fuel oil. So I had no idea what residual fuel oil was, but, you know, being intelligent, I learned about it. And, and the idea was that you would, you wanted to reduce the use of fuel oil by power plants. So we, uh, because that's a byproduct, one of the products of breaking the barrel of oil into its component parts and gasoline and resid and av- aviation gas and things like that. And so we uh, did things like power wheeling. I had no idea what power wheeling was at the time. So power wheeling is you talk to the Canadian utilities, which have more than enough power from water- hydro, let's say, or they weren't on the embargo so they could use residual fuel oil. And they would basically send power down their lines to part of our grid. So that would reduce our need for the resid on the other side. So I did that, and you know I became this guy's special assistant, and um, had a uh, had a great uh, year. It was the Office of Energy Data Policy uh, learned a whole lot, and then at about that point, Nixon had resigned, and I remember that whole vividly. Being outside the White House today, he signed the papers and walked across, and all these people were hanging out on the fence. It was like vultures. You know, so we're we're going through impeachment now. It's very different. You know, we don't have anybody in the process today. It was like Sam Irvin and Howard Baker. You've got people who are so clearly political shills all around on both sides, Republican and Democrat. And uh, but in the the Watergate, it sort of crept up on people. But you had people who were who were known as stable and 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 bipartisan people in their own right, but we don't have that at the moment. But in any case, so I... Was there a, a palpable sense of, of loss of morale in, in, you know, when you were outside of the White House, but still in the administration? No, I think, uh, I think everybody was ready for him to go. You know, he, 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 his, uh, he, he had so, so clearly committed um, uh, acts which set him up for this and which uh, it was a it was a different situation now Nixon the, the similarity between Nixon and uh, Trump is that people uh, the opposition has been after was after them both before they ever got there uh, Nixon however had the benefit that her block who was a famous New York Times cartoonist I think it was New York Times could have been the post but in any case he gave him a shave is what he called it so in all of the cartoons Nixon had this heavy you know, beard shadow, and then the day after the election, Herblock gives him a shave, and and so it was clean shaven, and so at least there was goodwill. I I I can't say there's ever been any goodwill around Trump uh, from uh, the the other side on all this kind of stuff. But anyway, so so Nixon had resigned, Ford had become vice president, um, uh, Agnew had resigned. He was the vice president earlier. Uh, Ford bec- had become vice president, and then. Um, uh, and then Ford, as part of his uh, his thing, had been to uh, when he pardoned Nixon. Uh, there was such a big public outcry; he knew he had to do something to sort of counterbalance it. So he created what was called the Presidential Clemency Board, and the idea was to give Vietnam veterans who had bad discharges or a variety of things. And initially, it was actually aimed at draft dodgers, so-called draft dodgers who'd fled to Canada and all that. And then he broadened that to people with bad discharges and that he created that. And I was sort of made sure I was drafted into that effort. And the president had then, and probably still does, the ability to 
start some agency or spend some program, his own funds without congressional approval as long as it's one day shy of a year. So we had to get all these cases in and we had to- Didn't know that. Yeah, process them and then get them out of there by the end of, before the year ended. Um, and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, so the so the clemency board, um, I went over to that. That was uh, the, the key people in that were a bunch of people from the Peace Corps, uh, management staff and everything. And then they drafted nearly 500 attorneys from all around the government. And the initial response was sort of tepid to the appeal, do you want to have your case looked at? And then they did a Playboy ad <laughs> because they were aiming at young men. And then they did a, a flyover at uh, the Super Bowl that year, and they really got this flood. And in the end, we had about 35,000 people apply. And that's really w- the first time that I had ever seen management as a tool. I had actually gone to Washington, been accepted to Knight Law School at Georgetown, thought I was going to be a lawyer, but I didn't want to go to school anymore. I'd been in five years, and I really wanted a break. But the more I spent in Washington, the more it was clear to me there were more than enough lawyers, but there were not many managers. And so I did. Probably, probably an understatement. Yeah, it's probably it's true today, too, you know. Uh, and, and, of course, all lawyers think they're the best managers on the face of the planet. But I, I actually think of them as plumbers, you know. They, 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 but uh, they so, – so the clemency board, uh, we had about a staff of about uh, 535,000 people and – I was with the management team, and my job at uh, 24, 25 was to, um, to uh, manage the pipeline. So I would literally interview every part of the operation every day, morning, and, and we'd find out that that morning we'd received 1,000 applications by mail, you know, 365 had been opened, a case file had been started on another 200. 400 were in review with attorneys, uh, 75 were going to the board this day, uh, and then uh, the and then I worked with this guy named Bill Strauss, and Bill was a uh, Harvard undergrad, Harvard Law School, and in the first class of the Kennedy School. So he had a real management bent. He he also later became a founder of the Capital Steps when he was with Senator Percy. Uh, you may or may or not have heard of the Capital Steps, but they're a great, funny musical group here in D.C. They take, they take um, some current political event and they write lyrics, and he was a great lyricist, to uh, songs. Like uh, my favorite was uh, years ago was called Help, Help Me, Rwanda. And that was an Idi Amin and all these guys were down there. They at the Kennedy Center? They play at the Kennedy Center. They built a business. They're all around the country now. They uh, have a variety of venues, but they're just a lot of fun. Uh, I haven't seen them in years, but Bill died about 10 years ago from cancer. But uh, he was a sort of a Da Vinci kind of figure. He painted and wrote and everything else. But he was very oriented towards data and analysis, and that was really the first time I'd seen it in an analytical context. So we, one of the first things he discovered is this board of very prominent people was making entirely random decisions. So... For they they would so he started breaking the decisions down into here's the case here's what the actions were and he came up with the idea of he and the rest of the team came up with the idea of aggravating and mitigating factors so they would say uh, a long military history is a mitigating factor drugs are an aggravating factor 
disobedience, re regular disobedience might be. A, I'm not sure those were even the factors. But he then forced the board <coughs> to actually vote on what would be the, cat the factors that you could consider. And then he forced them to vote for every case which ones applied. And so you, then you had a formula, a decision formula. And, and every single case, after it was decided, was reviewed by the, the attorney team, and then it went back through an automatic appeal process. So that's something that, in my opinion, should be done everywhere uh, in the government. So my question is, what kind of software or maybe even hardware, paper, what are you using for paper? For paper. No, there was no, there were, you, you realize there were, there, there were, computers were not widespread at all. We were still using right. stencils. We didn't, you know, Xerox, we had a little bit of Xerox, but that was just in its infancy at the time. And in fact, when I went, I was there to the day they closed the doors, and then I went to start to write a book with Bill. We had kept great data. His whole thing was to keep the data, do a book about it afterwards. Paper files. Uh, paper files produced a, a book called Chance and Circumstance, the, in which uh, the uh, Notre Dame uh, had provided a grant up front. And I worked with them for about probably six weeks and decided I didn't like being the low man on the totem pole. So <laughs> in the meantime, had uh, spent a lot of time with the Ford campaign, the reelection campaign. And so I had an offer to and, go. And so before we jump into that, how many of those 35,000 people received clemency? Uh, most received some form of clemency. So the case that always sticks in my mind was of a, an African-American who had done three tours in Vietnam, multiple awards, Purple Hearts, and everything else. And he was cashiered on his final return home to Germany for marijuana use and lost his medical benefits and everything. That you know, it's very harsh outcome, and the clemency board turned overturned it, gave him full benefits back, and, and so that would be a more typical case than anything else. And then, ironically, we only if we found two dozen draft dodgers, I'd I'd be surprised. That was more of a blown up myth myth than a reality in in all of that. So interesting, yeah. yeah. So yeah. they they really they really bore down in these cases, and I think there are still lessons to be learned and the veterans system today, and I believe me, I banged my head on the VA a number of times about how to automate and, and uh, create a set of rules that are, you can understand and, and accelerate. You know, they had a million people in a line at one point. And I think if they'd had a system automated like we did using today's technology, much better outcomes, automatic appeals. I mean, 60, something like 60% of all these cases go to appeal. So you, you're, you're double, double loading the system, and if you had an automatic technology review, of course they could do it, but VA is such a screwed up place. It is. I, <laughs> I, I, so I actually just finished um, the Ken Burns documentary oh, yeah. on Vietnam. Yeah. It's a 10-part series. Mm -hmm. Each one is about two hours. It yeah. took me months to finish this thing. And it is, it's incredibly moving. And you learn so much about how the war actually started. Mm -hmm. You know, it's people think of it as just the 65 to, you know, 71 or whatever right. it was. But it was really a 20-year engagement oh, for yeah. the United States. Yeah, the U.S., uh, I think, advisors first went in under Eisenhower, just a handful. And then Kennedy, of course, bumped them up. And then, and then uh, by the time Johnson became president, he felt like he couldn't lose a war. So there you go. It's incredible, and it started with 
the French actually. Yeah. You know, they yeah. want they That's were right. pressured they were colony. To, yeah, they were it was a French colony. Oh yeah. They could not compete um, against the communist insurgency and then we had to go in yeah. and well, we didn't have to, but we did go in. Well, it was a it was a countrywide uh, rebellion, though. The whole it was it wasn't just the north. I mean, the, sure. Yeah, but the they did cut the deal with the communists, who were they they were more. In, in retrospect, I think a lot of historians, regional historians, would say they were less communist than they were. That was the tribe they chose to pick, right, to work with. Yeah, I mean, it, it look it was basically you know uh, it was the the. the the best of the worst choices yeah at first and yeah. i think and it showed you know that documentary showed that afterwards uh the country was ruined by yeah. the the communist strong arm yeah that just socialized everything yeah and the, except a lot today of they died. Are, today they're a huge economic power well they liberalized their economy yeah 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 but that's but remember again it's it they were less communists than they were socialist sure and, and in that respect again it was a choice for them of who was going to help them do whatever we weren't going to step up to help so i'm almost embarrassed to admit that i didn't actually know for sure that we lost that war but when you watch that documentary it becomes yeah. very clear you know yeah. we we lost well nixon um but they had to gussy it up and look like we sure. were coming out with a victory and and kissinger and, the, and all of them sort of did that and then they um and then of course i remember the pictures of of the fall of uh the fall and the helicopters taking off from the U.S. Embassy there. And we actually have a number of Vietnam, Vietnamese refugees from that period here in D.C. And they, several of the restaurateurs, in fact, yep. uh, uh, here were airlifted out in that. One of the most prominent was uh, Jermaine Swanson from Jermaine's years ago in Georgetown and a fabulous cook. And she uh, she met her now husband uh, who was a National Geographic photographer and I don't know if he was Nat Geo at the time but he was a photographer and and they he whisked her out of there and later they got married well when you see what those people went through yeah and uh, during the war and even yeah. on a daily basis it's really not a surprise that they're gonna thrive with yeah everything yeah. at our fingertips here well right. all right so so you went to the so, Ford so campaign the Ford campaign yeah and then the Ford campaign was a great experience I was uh, made the uh, issue Director, they actually called it the uh, the the answer desk. So, in a in a campaign with a sitting president, the campaign has almost no impact on what the issue stance would be. So, it becomes an interpreter kind of role, and the White House would send over all their position papers or all of their statements or all of this, and we in the campaign would then try to turn that into something that had political salience or kept us from losing some votes or winning other votes and and that was uh, I had a huge raft of volunteers and uh, a couple of good friends uh, later you know that I met there they they were in the campaign with me and then uh, Jim Baker was the head of the campaign uh, at I, I think he was well, I can't remember if he was head of the campaign but he was very involved and then uh, a number of the people who I've known most of my career started there but Ford was an accidental president and so there was some flexibility there and and but it, he was primaried by ronald reagan and that went all the way to the convention so we would make up books for delegates and and try to figure out what each delegate's thing was and what the state was and and then do the briefings and and um so a couple of us actually my former 
a guy, uh, Ralph Stanley, who uh, was a little, few, little younger than I was, am, and, but he died of cancer himself uh, in his 40s uh, later, but he, he was a brilliant guy, and he and I wrote a memo on, on uh, projecting that Carter would win the nomination and that he would pick Al Gore based on what we were thinking, and that, of course, turned out to be... Uh, Al Gore, not, not Gore, yeah, not Gore. Um, Mondale at the time, and um, and Carter did win the election, and, you know, Mondale was his VP. But but Reagan, um, that convention was fought right down to the to the last vote. I think we won by one vote. and uh, On the floor. On the floor, yeah. And, of course, what, what you know historically is that presidents who are primary lose. And so he lost, and George Bush was primary, and he lost, and, and so on and so forth. So the... So I did that, and Ford then uh, went through the campaign. And in the meantime, I had decided to go to grad school finally and had applied to to a number of the very, very prominent schools and gotten in everything. I had applied to a couple, you, you know, name uh, business schools and name law schools, and you can think of the top three or four or five, and got in all of them. And then while I was in the campaign, I was – one day I opened the New York Times, and below the fold was an announcement of a new school at Yale, School of Management. And they were not going to be a, quote, business school. They were going to be a, quote, management school. The idea being that that uh, they wanted to prepare people for society as it was. And in the real world, business and not-for-profit and government all intersected all the time. So uh, I, I went up, interviewed, got in, and... Bill Strauss, who I'd mentioned earlier and who had done uh, Kennedy School in his first, in the first year of the school, said, well, all these other schools are great, but there's nothing like being in the first class. So I accepted, and about 47 or 8 of us matriculated into the program, and, and most people, I think 45, graduated. And then the, and, and the idea was that, for example, in an accounting class, uh, my professor is this guy named Bernie, and he was a great real-world public sector accounting guy, and he would say, well, you know, everybody thinks accounting is a business tool. When you go to business school, you learn accounting and blah, 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 but it was invented by Sumerian government scribes to collect tax revenues and perfected by monks in the Middle Ages, double-entry bookkeeping. And and then, so it was like that. So you would, in your marketing course, you would have, one day it would be selling soap for Procter & Gamble, that would be the case, and the next day it would be selling needles on the streets not selling, giving away needles on the streets in New Haven for drug users. And, and so the idea was to what are the common management questions in each of these and how do you decide what applies in which context? And so, and the school has gone through multiple deans and revisions. It's now, in a, it's got a new dean in the last couple months, but it's, it has throughout its career, you know, the school, and it's now going on pretty close to 45, 50 years. It's uh, adhered pretty much to that. That's the differentiator. Although they changed to a quote business school MBA back in the '90s over many people's objections. So well, you're still pretty involved, right? Very involved in that. Uh, although I, I will say that I didn't much like the last dean, so I stopped giving money and being involved. And he much didn't, pretty much didn't like my take on his his take either. You know, as a guy who we we never had grades, we always had pass failure or um, proficient and he 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 
just instituted grades all by himself, five-tier grades, fixed grading curve, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they've had to loosen that up because, you know, you're talking the top 1% of 1% of 1% uh, business school students in the country, and and they're all self-motivated. They don't really need some artificial mechanism like that. So, uh, but, it's, but it's got a new dean, and I know it's kind of a renewed take on the the public and not-for-profit pieces so i'm sure. looking forward to meeting him so so i did that and uh, i commuted though the first six weeks of school between the campaign and school and uh, and they were aware and they would uh they looked askance but i would i would take the train up and do my homework and i'd fly back there how long does that commute well on the train it was about four and a half five hours on the airplane it was about two hours because you had to get to the airport and fly down and they had direct flights from Tweed in those days down to uh, then National Airport. So that was, so I could go every other day and skip every other, every third or fourth class. And um, and then I had a funny occurrence at one point, but it also illustrated the difference in Yale versus everyone else, which is the, um, I was confronted by one of the professors and he said, you've missed two classes if you miss one more you're out and i said you can't do that and he said yes you can i said no you can't you didn't make that a a, a, a um, criteria at the beginning of school and he said it doesn't matter and i said it does matter and we took it to the faculty and the faculty said you can't make up a rule midstream so i was allowed two more misses maybe you should have went to law school <laughs> yeah right two more misses and i missed one more or two more and and then you know did fine in the class and all that kind of stuff so and then i got out and i uh went to uh, I, well, in the summer, I had a great experience. I went back home, sort of randomly sent a note to this guy who was uh, uh, to Florida Gas, which was out of Orlando, and sent it to Selby Sullivan, who passed it along to the president of the company, a guy named Ken Lay. And, and Ken uh, and I hit it off, and my project for the summer was to project energy usage in Florida over the next 10 years and what part of that was going to be gas. And, and I literally had to do it by hand on spreadsheets with a hand calculator to make this, you know, run those numbers. So if you can imagine, but he was, it was a great experience. He was very public oriented. He had a, had a great jet, little jet that we would fly to Washington. He'd like to take me along for this lobbying trips and meetings at API and the gas, AGA, the gas this, people. Is this the same? Uh, yes, Ken Lay, yes. And then later uh, they took the company to Texas, renamed it Transco, and then um, he, he um, uh, then Ken became CEO and kind of created the gas market. And then we had the, and then they renamed it Enron. And, and then of course we had the whole Enron scandal. And, and but to this day, I, I would argue that Ken Lay, who was both very religious and highly ethical and an economist and public oriented, I, I don't believe that he ever would have done anything deliberately illegal or unethical or immoral. Although he did end up running off with his secretary, but that's a different. <laughs> but I, you know, it's funny. I, I so when I met the family, I sort of saw that coming. But he, uh, he, so I think he was a victim of success in some ways. You know, I think he felt towards the end. And there's a good book uh, called the something of the of Dunces, it's the conspiracy of the fools, by a New York Times reporter who dissected it all, and he basically asserted that. It was Andy Fastow and those guys who had all the data, and they were relying on it. And Ken sort of assumed that, you know, his his thinking on this was Ken assumed that he was in, 
he sort of deserved to have people running the company well, and they were doing it, and they were being told this and that and this and that. Um, but so he was a fall guy for the federal prosecutors, and and uh, so anyway, it's a. When I was in school, I heard uh, Fast Al co- speak. Oh, he did. Yeah, so he came to Whoa. the business school at, at Miami, and yeah. I remember it was a big to do because there was a student org that was sponsoring it, and the university did not want him yeah. to come, and they kind of waged a silent campaign to make yeah. sure he didn't come. But so, so I went there, and it was it was packed to the brim. I mean, everybody wanted to hear what this guy had to say. Mm-hmm. He was actually just uh, recently released before mm-hmm. he yeah. came to speak, and so. You know, he gave a, a pretty emotional plea to, uh, you know, not not do things that are wrong. You know, all the, the years that he lost with his daughter and whatnot. He was one of the most brilliant people I've ever oh, he, heard. He's very intelligent, obviously. And he went on a, a more or less a rant about mark-to-market accounting in, mm-hmm. in terms of pensions in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. And, and I've looked into this, and the pension crisis is coming. I mean, a lot of people who yeah. are in that world talk about yeah. it. That's right. I mean, he was basically saying these public companies that are putting their pensions at 6% and then borrowing against that are more criminal than what he did, even though it's legal. Wow, I don't know. I don't. Know I, I'm sure that. he's trying to justify these days, right? Right. right so, but it was a it, yeah. it was a pretty interesting talk. Yeah, yeah, no, and he's obviously a smart guy. And then Jeff Skilling was president. Jeff, uh, you know, it's all very complicated. But I I just fundamentally think Ken was the guy that the federal prosecutors wanted to scalp, and and I he and he in the end sort of thwarted them. He appealed the case and then he died, which meant that the conviction was vacated and he's innocent and all. He gets, his family got to keep the money and, you know, and so, you know, I think they're, they rebuilt their lives and everything else. But, but I, anyway, so that, yes, it was the same Ken Lay. And so I did school and, and I went back to Houston with a guy who had been my wife's boss at the federal, the uh, strategic petroleum reserve. He had an idea to, uh, to create a, oil storage company using salt domes. The Federal Strategic Petroleum Reserve was using salt domes to store oil as well. And he had thought, well, maybe I can turn this into a commercial business. And so I went back with him. And not long into that, I got a call from George H.W. Bush, who was president of, I think, or chairman of the uh, one of the uh, one of the banks in Houston. And he said he was thinking about running and had a pack and and I just went over, volunteered with him, and that's really how I met the Bushes, and that's another whole story. Well, so, you know, and I know you were issue director for that mm-hmm. campaign, yeah, right? So, right. obviously, you, you jump back in, but it kind of sounds like at this point, going to school management, having that internship in the summer, sounds like your thinking is, is starting to change, you know, diving into the private sector. Was there an internal tug when you got that call? You know, I, um, I, I'm not sure I was thinking strategically or anything else there are a lot of people who would say well he's never really worked because he always did what he wanted to do so <laughs> you know I've always enjoyed what I do and it was just uh, it's like two of my mentors had apparently recommended me to him uh, one was a uh, professor at Yale Paul McAvoy who I had met under the Ford administration and been uh, he'd been at CEA under Ford, and the other was Dave Gergen, who's a pretty well-known political commentator who I'd met in the Ford campaign. And uh, so I actually started. I went up. To, I was. I did. I was doing my job on the one hand, which is handling the regulatory stuff and and um, doing some finance and everything on the, this company. But then 
we um, I started every six weeks. I'd end up going up to Kenny Bunkport to uh, to help put to get to pull together the group of issue advisors, and then. Uh, at some point, just decided we'd go with the campaign. I had an offer, and I went the campaign. So, uh, moved back to Washington. Headquarters was in Alexandria, and, and I think that was probably from uh, probably from early spring to to when he dropped out in September. Uh, and I did not at that time want to go with Reagan. I had a view of Reagan as this extremely right wing, crazy guy, cowboy kind of thing, and. And of course, you know you, you have to be careful about what your impressions are. The um, he was extremely conservative and all that, but he'd spent years governing and he'd run the third largest country on the planet, which is California, and had several successful terms there. And but at least he had his own had a clear view of government and a clear view of his own philosophy. And you could, he was somewhat predictable in that respect. But I do remember there was an issue um, um, oil price. Decontrol was a big issue after Nixon. They controlled the price of oil, and it and it kept. They never decontrolled it, and but so under Ford, one of the questions is, do you do price decontrol? And under Bush, it was, what do you do about price decontrol? And everybody came up with the idea that you would do it gradually, so as not to have a major impact on the economy, under the assumption that the price would spike and, and knock everything off its feet. And Reagan gets gets in and wipes it out with an executive order and the next thing you know it's fine no spike well it was probably a spike but it worked its way through the economy fast none of the negative impacts at least in my memory that we had all predicted in the political class and so i'm i I think the lesson to me at at an abstract level was that sometimes just being decisive and doing it is better than wringing your hands and and never getting to an answer, and and I think that's still true today in politics and business and everything else. But so anyway, so I at that point, I went off and started a consulting firm with some friends. And um, well, well, before we jump into that, was there a big difference in issue director for oh, a yeah. sitting president yeah. oh, versus? Oh, totally. Yes, with 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 Bush, the issue was, of course, he'd spent years and years in government. He'd been uh, ambassador to China. He the head of the RNC, Republican National Committee. He had been a congressman for several terms. He uh, had been a business guy. So he had a very clear point of view about everything. Um, but, you know, like everyone, you it's hard to know everything about everything. And so, uh, but he knew everyone. And so, you know, when we wanted to put together, and he was very interested in foreign policy, ambassador to China. And so, and he felt that was his big skill. It was, and he... Uh, so when you know, we put together a group of people to help on that, it, it would be people like Kissinger or Brent Scowcroft or uh, you name a name, George Schultz. And Schultz was also on the economic committee, and we had tax people, Rudy Penner from AEI and a bunch of people like that. And my job was sort of extract from them what they thought and and then put it in the form of decision papers and sit-downs with uh, with Bush and then – and Dave Gergen and, and Paul McAvoy were the, my two key advisor, mentor advisors on that. And uh, they, of course, had known Bush far longer than I had. And so we would then write papers. And we had an army of people as volunteers in the issue operation. We had probably 100-plus people who were former CIA, former State Department, former government, who really were very expert and you know, people would send in a question and say, what's the president's position or the, the – uh, 
the candidate's position on this or that, and they would come up with what they thought was the best answer, and then we'd run it by Bush, and he'd edit it or say whatever, and that became the position. And so it was uh, very different. You, you're really shaping policy. And then when he dropped out, we had a very robust set of deregulation proposals. So when he dropped out and then was put on the ticket and became vice president, he became the energy, the uh, deregulation czar under the Reagan administration. And, and basically his policy papers, the ones that we crafted, became the basis for the Reagan administration's deregulation. It's good to know that your work didn't uh, didn't go for nothing. Yeah, that's right. But it sounds like you're essentially just a router a of router. information. Um, no, because we had to evaluate it, and I I still to this day remember sitting in one of the, uh, uh, and you know, and I'm the guy who cooked up the his tax plan. He had to have a tax plan, so I had to come up with a couple ideas and run them by other people, and then run the numbers, and then craft it in a way that he would accept it, because he wouldn't do any tax cuts that led to a deficit. He wanted to reduce the deficit, and so my job was to persuade him of how this would work. But I still remember sitting in one of the briefings up at Kenny Bunkport, and we bring all these people up in a big group and put them. They'd sleep at a variety of places, you know. I and then the staff. I was put up at Blueberry Hill. I think it was Jane Russell's house there, and they had wild blueberries in the front. It was very cool, and and um, and then um, he. Uh, would uh, well, Barbara would uh, do these big lunches of soup and clam chowder, and sometimes we'd go over and have lobster for dinner. You know, it was Maine, right? And um, and then we'd have several sessions during the day. And I just remember this one session on energy, and and this I can't remember who the general was or somebody said something about, well, you know, the strategic petroleum reserve. The problem with that is they could put the oil in, but they don't know how to take it out. The, the, the pumps are one way, and I said, well, not actually. The pumps are designed to be flipped so that the ones that put it in take it out. They're trying to save money. And the glare from George Bush, you know, could have cut right there because he didn't want you contradicting this guy in public. But, of course, I'm sitting here thinking, I, I actually know this. <laughs> and um, so, no, it wasn't just parsing other people's stuff. But, you know, all policy is about – taking a lot of different ideas and and trying to figure out what it is you're trying to accomplish and which of these things will work best. It's very interesting. Um, Okay, so where'd you go after that? Um, Let's see. After the... Well, I started this consulting firm with some friends and and did that for a while. We ended up breaking up. You should never go into business with friends. And and then... uh, by about, and then I set up my own policy, consulting policy, regulatory consulting practice, solo practice, and worked out of the house. And uh, about 1982, 83, I, I re-upped my, my uh, residency in Florida where I'd grown up, and I got a condo down there, and I maneuvered and was nominated for Congress against Bill Nelson, who was uh, the then a third-termer and was on the space committee and and he or, near Orlando yeah so so it was Orange County Melbourne and uh, uh, Brevard County and part of uh, and Osceola County and part of Volusia so it was Indian River and Indian River County and so it was all Central Florida then and um, got the nomination and and uh, lost that Bill never wanted he would never debate never do any of those kinds of things and and we could never quite afford polling but uh, he uh but reagan came down uh, and ford came down and did a big fundraiser and that was helpful and then reagan was there for something else and cut an ad radio ad for me that 
and Bush a TV ad and like 10 days before the election. And boy, you could just see the thing coming. You, you could just see the numbers rising. And uh, I still to this day remember going to a Republican women's club three or four days after those ads started running and the endorsement. And this little old white-haired, what, well, blue-haired you know, lady, Republican lady in Republican Ladies Club, comes up and says, I didn't know the president was going to endorse you. And I said, well, who else would have President Reagan have endorsed? And she said, well, I thought he'd endorse Bill Nelson. I said, well, Bill Nelson's a Democrat. She says, I know, but he says he votes with the president all the time. And I'm going, I'm flabbergasted. And I said, wait, you know he voted for Tip O'Neill for Speaker of the House. And she says, Bill would never do that. <laughs> and, of course, Bill did because Bill was a Democrat first and foremost. And uh, even during that campaign, we got wind uh, – uh, the administration was going to – he had maneuvered to get uh, on a space launch so he could be a, quote, astronaut. And and we got wind of it, and I was able to get to, to Bush, who got to the NASA and Reagan and all that, and they canceled it. So he was really pissed that he didn't get it on that one. And he was sort of lucky in the end because the flight he would have been on was the one that blew up later. Wow. And, and the first one. And um, so – but he then you went saved up, his life. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he would never acknowledge that. But anyway, he then eventually went on a flight and, and portrayed himself as a as an astronaut thereafter. And that's such BS. But you know, they that's what they politics. That's what politicians do. But at least, but you know, the the fact that the White House hadn't even thought about the impact on the election is so typical. You know, they're they're also focused on their own macro, but not enough on the micro, which is a problem when you're trying to build a coalition and all that. So I lost. It was about uh, 42 to 60-something. It was pretty good for a first-timer. And then uh, I went back to D.C. for a bit and then uh, later ran again in 90. I, I became – when Bush became president, uh, I was nominated federal maritime commissioner and was there for two years. But I was very specific there thinking about the Senate race. And I Bob Graham was the senator then and first-termer. And so I went back to Florida, resigned, went back to Florida – um, uh, w it was a three-way primary, unfortunately, and the guy, the, the principal guy was this uh, former Democrat from um, North Florida, Bill Grant, who had been a congressman, converted. The, the party had spent a lot of money to try to get him elected. He'd lost, but of course they built a lot of name ID for him in the party. And then uh, a third guy, Hugh, Hugh something from Tampa or somewhere over there, and my uh, base was about uh, 40, 42% of it we calculated from my base vote was in Miami. And that's Cuban community and all that, and they had really good introductions there. And we're, we did a great effort from um, end of April to September and then the election and the uh, primary. And four days before the primary, Hurricane Andrew struck Miami. And I remember fleeing from a fundraiser there that was canceled, which I really needed, to back to Orlando and the hurricane hitting and going down two days later. But, of course, the, the vote, nobody turned out. And they moved the, the voting to, I think, the Saturday after it or something. Again, nobody turned out. So basically, my base was gone, and yeah, Bill Grant won, and then he lost 3-1 to one to Bob Graham, which would have been the best time to run. And, um, <clears throat> and then I went... Uh, uh, by then, um, Bush had won, uh, and I was, uh, let's see, was that right? No, he, no, by then, uh, yeah, that's right, he lost, <laughs> I, and I went to help the campaign, you know, on his reelection, and uh, and then 
just about that time, out of the blue, I had a, 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 a email or letter or something from a guy named Ola Scarup up in Connecticut. And he said, you know, you loved what you did as Federal Maritime Commissioner. Um, I'm thinking about a shipbuilding company. And shipbuilding in the U.S. is rock bottom. And he, um, he was this old Danish guy come over after World War II, very successful entrepreneur, invented the self-offloading uh, uh, ocean carrier. It was a ship that had a conveyor belt down to the, by, to the mines or on the shore of the big piles of, of minerals, and it would load them on and then it'd get to the next place and load them off using the conveyors. And, and most people don't know, most ship types were invented by the customer, like him. He was a customer, and not by the industry. And he, uh, he had an idea for a, a new double-hull tanker. The Oil Pollution Control Act had passed. Everybody had to convert to double-hull oil tankers. Uh, he had spent a lot of money studying shipbuilding and the industry and come up with this idea for a, a, a essentially a beam, uh, I-beam-based um, sections of a ship that could be as big as you wanted. And, and you know how a, a steel I-beam looks like an I. And the idea was to build big ones and and put them in these sort of square modules that you could put together and add to an, to an end in a, a bow and a stern and all the equipment and everything else. And uh, I agreed to head that U.S. Shipbuilding Corporation. Yeah, spent a lot of time commuting to Greenwich. That was kind of a pain. That was the bad part of it. Got the design approved. Are, are those the massive... Cargo ships that yeah, you think these of? Are, th this was for tankers, oil tankers, okay. and product tankers, and VLCCs and all that. But these could have been small ones, too. But his idea was that they're going to have to replace it. The U.S. shipbuilding industry is basically incompetent, uh, particularly on the commercial side. And so he was trying to figure out how to revitalize that and create new industry. He, you know, he felt strongly that uh, the U.S. needed more heavy industry, and a lot of people were talking about that, and this was his contribution. And so we got a design done, and I spent a lot of time talking to various shipyards, uh, including looking a bunch overseas. I went to Japan and Europe and all the, the sea yards, and we uh, found a yard that we thought could do it, uh, but they weren't a shipyard. They were a, uh, a, an oil platform uh, company that was McDermott, but they had a shipbuilding company, McDermott Shipbuilding. But what was good was we... The, the thing about the I-beam construction is it's not complex curves. What the U.S. industry historically then certainly was not very good at was building the complex curves you need for the bow um, that, you know, where the ship cuts through the water, you want it to do certain kinds of things, hydro hydrological kinds of things. And um, so this would get around a lot of that. And the, the law was that, still is, the Jones Act governs that, which is that ships operating inside the U.S. had to be uh, built in the U.S., manned by Americans, owned by Americans, flagged American. Um, and, of course, they all think that saved them. That's actually destroyed them, but that's another uh, whole set of issues. But, And in particular, oil coming from Alaska had to be on U.S. flagged ships, which had to be built in the U.S., manned by Americans, owned by Americans, and all that. So this was something we thought you could build in the U.S. at a relatively... Uh, uh, competitive price, and uh, so I did that for probably two and a half years, I think. I went over, to, there's a great uh, shipping conference in Greece every other year called Posidonia, and you have all these rich Greek ship owners and others coming, and, and they talk about business and this and that, and they buy ships, and they trade ships, and they sell ships, and, 
and uh, went over, got a very large order from a Greek, and he decided he wanted to have the Maritime Administration finance it. Well, the Maritime Minister, I told him it was a big mistake. Maritime Administration had subsidies they could use, um, but they had never really dealt with a foreign buyer, and particularly Greeks. And Greeks buy low, sell high. They ride debt until they sell it, and they just could never make the numbers work for them. So when he when he made this purchase order, mm-hmm. you had not actually built a ship yet? Nope. So it's nope. just off of Speculation. the design? Yeah, off the design and the potential partnership with the shipyard with this shipyard that it, that was not that didn't build ships so much as oil platforms, which was very deliberate on our part. So you go to them and say, This is the design that we have. Yeah. We want you to build and it. And this is what we think the price will be and and um, should be. And then for the yard, it's, they actually said they thought they could do it. And in the end, they thought they couldn't do it for the price. But the And then with the buyer, it was, well, he started out, well, I'll try two. And then how about four? Well, how about ten? And and that kind of grew into big because they think big. They're trying to think how to take advantage of it. And he wanted to take advantage of the U.S. government and the subsidies. But he also, the system was not designed for for this kind of buyer. And that's not anyone's fault. That's other than the fact that the U.S. is so out of shipbuilding that we, and so not used to selling on the international markets anymore that it's just impossible for them to really have the experience to evaluate it in the same way a, you know, a, public sec- a private sector company would. So, so what ended up happening? A deal cratered. I quit. Um, uh, and and uh, was, let's see, I think, well, I, about that point I was invited, asked by a group of uh, farmers to go ahead. The, um, they they want to set up a group to get rid of the Jones Act. And uh, when I was maritime commissioner, I was the bad boy of the industry. Because my first speech, I, I went out there and said, if this industry wants to be competitive, they might try competing for a change. <laughs> so we, we were gonna we were gonna save this to the end, but why don't we dive in here? So this is section twenty seven of the Merchant Marine Act of nineteen twenty. That's right. Also it's coming known up as the Jones Act. Hundredth year. The one hundredth year, yeah, right. and it essentially states that U that ships that it operate in the U S. have to be U S. flag, and they have to be built in the which means essentially have to be built in an, in the U S. and they have to be manned by Americans, and they have to be owned by American companies, and. And it was, the law was, you know, they've always been some form of cabotage laws, is what they're called, that restrict trade in, in the U.S. N- nothing is as severe as this anywhere else on the planet, except in two little landlocked countries like Bulgaria and something else, which is crazy. But they, you know, the proponents of these laws insist everybody does it and that it's been embedded. Well, well so you're, you're against it. Yes. And, and let, let's hear a, a one-minute overview of why someone should be for it. Before we hear your explanation, well, what's the rationale so, for it? So, what the rationale that the, the invented rationale is that it's critical to national security. When we have a war, we need to move goods on on ships, and we can only trust American ships and American sailors. So, we need to have, on the one hand, enough sailors in the commercial fleet to be able to man what are largely government vessels now because there's no commercial fleet that can cross the oceans, number one. And number two, we need a shipbuilding capacity to churn out ships in a war. And uh, and what, uh, leading into World War One, we essentially had already priced ourselves out of the markets. Uh, we had a very little merchant marine fleet. 
the we, they get to the war, they tried to do convoys, they had to count on foreigners, wouldn't do it, had to build a lot of ships, buy ships off the market, everything else, reflag them U.S., and then after the war they decided they didn't want to have quite that same thing happen again, and they, they, um, they created shipbuilding subsidies, they created operating subsidies to offset the cost of U.S. labor, they, off, uh, they did a variety of things, they tightened the restriction on who could operate in the U.S., they took the fleet they had built up for the military and sold it to the private sector to goose start. But again, by World War II, it had all essentially died off, and they had to redo it again. And, and, um, but at the end of World War II, we had something like 65,000 merchant mariners. We had um, the, the shipbuilding had gone into high gear. But of course, you know, it takes time to build a ship, and the wars in those days lasted long enough to do it. So. But that's not true anymore. Most of our wars, you have a fast convoy over, and and then the then over time you might have resupply, but it's nothing like the buildup up front. And one of the things I had done was to so they so the thing is oh it's critical to national security, which really is completely upside down. It's actually undermines national security because the effect of the law is we don't build many ships because they're so expensive, nobody wants to buy them including Americans in the trade. And the, what happens is that the ships are so expensive and then the operating costs are so expensive that it becomes cheaper to move your goods on train or truck. Uh, ironically. Within the United States. Within the United States. Ironically, that was the original purpose of the law. So Senator Jones in Washington state uh, had his railroads were being threatened by Chinese ships uh, the railroads coming out of Washington State up to Alaska were being threatened com by competitive ships, Chinese ships. So it, he basically asserted this. He even said at the time it's probably temporary and it won't necessarily work. Um, on the floor, it was never didn't go through committee, wasn't voted on. It was just a voice vote on the floor, kind of last minute, snuck in. And the idea was that he would prohibit ships from competing with his railroads. But it's couched as preventing bad sh foreign ships and competing with American ships, but there was really no significant American shipping presence at the time. And, of course, it was aimed at Alaska, and that's, you know, Alaskans have hated it ever since, and, you know, one of the governors said, that, you know, it was a colony then, and, and it was aimed at restricting their right to trade and harming their economy, and same thing with Hawaii, same thing with Guam, same, same thing with Puerto Rico. And so the actual effect of the law is because we don't build enough ships, they don't get uh, um, economies of scale, and frankly, we're not very good at it, and uh, I view that largely as a management issue, less so a labor issue, um, and and uh, we, we build Navy ships, and we build a handful, maybe two on average deep sea ships every year for the Jones Act. Uh, we've spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, on revitalizing shipyards in Philadelphia and you know Baltimore and everything else to try to sell ships overseas but basically they're a piece of crap what they've been put in, they put out I mean the Greeks who are the big ship owner operators will tell you that and um, so a ship built in the US may be three to five to seven or eight times more than a comparable ship built in anywhere else Europe whatever um, it's not labor costs uh, it's well. It's not the wage. So U.S. workers really receive a lower wage, um, hourly wage, than and, and wage package than let's say Europeans or or even Koreans or Japanese, which are the major builders. Um, Chinese probably lag. 
but the number of hours they had to put in is greater to build the same thing. So the net of the labor costs is much higher. Uh, but also the materials costs. Now we have to use U.S. steel, uh, which is much more expensive. We can't use foreign. You can use some componentry. Um, and then, uh, so you start with a really expensive ship. So almost no one wants to buy it. It has destroyed the actual domestic market. What used to go on ships now goes on trucks and trains. Shipping is, is inherently cheaper than either except in the U.S. domestic trades where it ends up being more expensive and slower and less convenient and so on and so forth. We do have a very robust barge industry, probably 10,000 barges, plus or minus. And um, what, you, what you see there is the maritime unions like to say, well, we have a robust fleet of Jones Act ships of 10,000, and they're not ships, they're barges. And what we're talking about here is ships that can cross an ocean in deep water, basically. And so... Ship cost is too high, drives customers away because ship cost is too high and drives customers away. There's no demand for the ships because there's no man in ships. There aren't ships because there aren't ships and no jobs. So we're down to probably 600 people on what would be full, full-time Jones Act ships. And Jones Act ships actually can't operate in international trade and vice versa, even even they happen to be U.S. flag. So, so we're down from 65,000 to about 600. We have more sailors operating on the U.S. owned, the government owned fleet than we do in the private deep draft fleet. Uh, again, the unions will say, we have 400,000 jobs dependent on the Jones Act. Well, sorry, you know, 98% of all shipping is international. So knock off 98% of all of that right away. It leaves 8,000. I have, I have this statistic, 95% of global trade is over the water. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, th- what happens here, 98% is is by ship, and um, and then you have a small percentage, very high value percentage that's aviation, um, and then uh, some rail across the borders, of course, in Canada and Mexico, um, but but a big chunk of what's now on truck and train, clogging highways and all of that, polluting the air, is because the Jones Act makes it so expensive to use a U.S. ship, which would be cheaper. And so the cargo moves off. And so, so now when the military has a sea lift problem, they have a war, they, they, they have most of the ships start in the government-owned ships and cargo, uh, cargoes, obviously. Most of the sailors are full-time on these ships. Um, uh, and then so they kind of throw them into the war. And, but the, the current administrators admitted that it would take about – Eight, I think it's 1,850 or so sailors to run the fleet. And uh, if we called all of them up, we might get them. And that assumes you get every living merchant mariner, including guys in their 90s, which, you know, and they're older than the, the, the ships are both older than the world fleet. The people are both older. The average age of a merchant mariner in the U.S. is in its 50s. Um, the average age of a ship is in its, in the 40s. You know, the, most ships are retired at 20 in the global markets, which they get less safe progressively, the sure. stresses on the ship and everything else. And of course, old technology, old, old systems. The, we have what's called the mothball fleet of old ships sitting there to be turned on and driven out to do this, but they don't have enough sailors to man them all. And they just did an exercise and took days and days and days for some of these things to get ready. Some of them never even made it, but... Um, and they use steam systems, which nobody uses anymore. So most of the young sailors have never seen one, don't know what to do with it. 
they should have an active reserve system like they do in the Navy and all that train them in all these vessels. Um, and then they're not trained to maneuver in war. They're not trained to zigzag like they did in, in World War II um, or anything like that. So it's, it's, uh, so it, it actually undermines our national security because there aren't enough ships. Uh, there are not enough jobs, not enough jobs, not enough sailors, not enough sailors to run the resupply. And when I was maritime commissioner, one of the things I did was it happened to be the first Gulf War. So I had access to all the data. And what I discovered is out of 490-some trips, um, almost half were on U.S. government-owned assets, and then another 35 or 40 percent were on um, foreign ships, uh, and then another 10 or 15 was U.S. flag brought in from international uh, and one Jones Act ship that wasn't, you know, this is old roll-on, roll-off ship that was on the shore, broken down in Puerto Rico. They had to fix it up in time and put it in the war so they could say they had it participated and you know very few incidents the the, the unions uh, like to say in fact they even strong arm the transportation command to mo- modify a report they like to say that these foreign crews can't be trusted there were x numbers of incidents where there was one incident uh in effect where basically a german crew said they didn't want to go in without getting more pay because american crews were being paid not only regular pay but war pay and they weren't getting it and then there was a U.S. ship that mutinied that that's been buried totally in all of this. And then we had similar issues in aircraft, All and the aircraft are all domestic. Uh, I'm going to make a suggestion. Yeah. You should write a book on the, ship, on the <laughs> several history people have said that. of the shipping industry. <laughs> so, several people said that. Well, this is not the whole industry. Remember, this is a narrow, narrow, tiny sliver of the industry. Right, and we're getting all this just yeah. for that. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think if there's one, one takeaway yeah. that you want people to know, it's— repeal the Jones Act and liberalize well, the Well, no, I, I think industry. on that one, I, I would just like to treat the shipping industry like we treat the trucking industry and the rail industry and the airline industry, which is allow them to buy their ships wherever they want to do it. You know, you don't have to buy airplanes in overseas. You don't have to buy your trains overseas. I mean, for public systems, transit where the government pays the money, it has to be built in the U.S., but that's, you sure. know, that's not a big deal. So you can buy your trucks wherever the hell you want to buy it. You can use foreign... You know, green card crews, whatever that you want, any of these. Now there are restrictions, and I would, I would say that if you're operating in U.S. waters, you, you should have to abide by all U.S. labor law, and and but that's an easy thing to have to do, and but I'm of the view that if if the maritime companies, the Jones Act companies, could buy ships on the global market, they the fleet would double and double again, and they would be taking cargo off the roads from trucks and trains, but they will never get there the way they're going. And ultimately, prices down for Prices will, will lower across the board, trucks, trains, uh, and ships, and uh, you'll be creating all these new jobs. And, and frankly, uh, I, I, I think the job thing's an interesting you know, Andrew Yang, you know, is talking a lot about robotics and automation. And, you know, I, you know, we're already seeing autonomous trucks on the roads being tested, particularly up in those corridors on the western side of Virginia and others. And number two, um, I think you'll start seeing autonomous commercial ships pretty soon. The, the Navy has just launched its first autonomous ship, and there's another in the works. And, and I think I just saw that uh, one of the international shipping companies had done that. But the big problem in all maritime is that, they really don't think about the customer. Uh, it's about what 
works for them. And at some point, I headed this Jones Act Reform Coalition, and it, one of the key members was a group of Hawaiian cattle farmers. Hawaii has always had a robust cattle industry, beautiful hills and grass and everything else. And for years, they would they would bring in grain from overseas, from the U.S., not overseas, uh, to feed the cattle, to fatten them up and everything else towards the end. And then the last of those ships sank. It was a Jones Act ship, and they couldn't bring the grain in from the U.S. anymore. So they began um, sending them over on cattle carriers when they were young cattle to be fattened up in the U.S., and the last of those sank. And so there are no more Jones Act cattle carriers, so they couldn't do it on a foreign cattle carrier. So they started Matson Navigation, which is you know owns Hawaii, Jones Act carrier, uh, came up with what they called a cow tainer. They take an ocean shipping container, cut it in half, and put a little ventilation, and put the ca- the baby cows in there. And they had a die-off rate two to three times what the normal die-off. So the farmers didn't like that either. And uh, so they started sending them back on empty backhauls on jumbos jets. So you have cows, cows on jets, on jets. Yes, back to the U.S. to the stockyards to fatten them up, and so it's it's crazy. Some of the distortions are just defy your imagination, and and that's what happens. We know that's true of all things like this. It distorts markets. So let's let's dive into uh, Intellix. I know you have to get going here, but we, to to kind of close on yeah. on the chapter. Yes. Yeah, so um, some at some point in the um, um, we were outspent many times over on the Jones Act thing. We got legislation uh, uh, endorsed and entered several times. John McCain was a big champion, um, and uh, but it's just so political. Everybody gets so much money from the, the maritime guys, and you know the military guys are trained to say, "Oh yeah, it's critical to national security." Even as they know, that's complete BS. And the um, and so congressmen will say, oh, I hate it, but, you know, it's critical to national security. Well, they don't know what they're talking about. They're wrong. But uh, And there was an effort in this administration to lift it on LNG because today if, if we want to get LNG to from, from American producers, we can't get it to American consumers because there are no LNG carriers. Well, LNG? Liquefied natural gas. Okay. Oh, LNG. Yeah. yeah, so you can't get it. There's no American ship that can carry it. There are three old ones that now are owned by a foreign government, foreign company, that people keep talking about reflagging in, but they can't. It's against the law, and they can't be outfitted for – it would take as much to re-outfit one of those for use in the American market as it would cost to build three new ones on the global market. So, so like Puerto Rico wants LNG – and they get it from Russia. And so we're, so Americans and allies of ours in this country, they can't get it from the U.S. They so we're helping the Russians. That's what the Jones Act does. And how that helps the United States defense, I don't know. But it's that kind of crazy distortion. So the Trump administration was actually thinking about um, lifting that. And they got, you know, that close. And, and, lab- and um, the senators from Louisiana and went in and bent his ear. I, I had told a lot of the people at the White House that it was going to be the last guy to talk to Trump. And Trump's instincts were right on this one, which was uh, give a waiver and all that. But, of course, the Jones Act guys are afraid that it's a slippery slope. It's not unlike uh, gun control. The, 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 the hammer of the NRA is, that, well, you know, it's a slippery slope. Well, it's sure, but you can control that. And um, so 
we'd rather have the Russians carry our gas or sell to Americans than to have Americans sell to Americans. That's really the bottom line. And if Trump really was for making America great again and for rebuilding industry and things like that, he would get rid of this law. Well, I just read today that we are even cutting production of natural gas yeah. because, and I know that you know there's a there's a common practice where they'll just burn off. Yeah, you know, they burn it off, and that great waste, huge waste. Right, and we have, and I know that you know Mexico is now becoming one of the largest uh, yeah. buyers of our natural gas. Um, well, and that's because they can, can get it by pipe. Right, right, right. Yeah. But you know now that we have, yeah, well, and foreign ships, foreign ships can take American gas and sell it to Mexico. But there are no U.S. ships that can do it. And, and as we produce it, we can't sell it to ourselves unless we've got a pipe. So it's pretty wild. It's crazy. So, um, well, anyway, so at some point um, I decided that uh, I, I was having lunch with a friend, a serial entrepreneur, and he, I was t- telling him, and I'd made some money you know, as an investor, a passive investor in, in some of the dot-com things towards the end of the 90s. And, and uh, follow the market pretty closely, and I was saying, you know, there's there's uh, um, there's uh, trucking.com and logistics.com and blah blah blah.com and this. And I said, someone should do something in shipping. And he, it was just sort of random throw. And he said, well, someone will. They're doing it and everything else. Why don't you? I'll raise you the money. And so uh, we cooked up a plan, and I quit the Jones Act thing, turned it over to someone else, and then the. Uh, we came up with the idea for a company. We called it Freight Desk. The idea was that uh, you were just starting to see uh, uh, dig- digitalization of, of of the logistics process, and the people in the who needed the most technology were the guys in the middle of the freight forwarders. So they handle the money, that book the cargo, do all the logistics around it, and everything else. And the big movement at the time was uh, how to get rid of the middlemen. And so the so the ma- mantra was everybody else was we're disintermediating the middlemen. So you have, for example, sheet and towel companies selling to Marriott, but they couldn't sell directly. They were selling through a middleman who was getting prices from a different manufacturer. So the idea of the internet in the '90s was you would get rid of that guy in the middle and buy direct and and have a marketplace online that would replace the middleman. Our thing was to to uh, was to re-intermediate the middleman. Uh, by the forder, we felt was necessary. They still are necessary. Some big businesses now. We were like 20 years ahead of our time. But in any case, so we raised some money, started the company, called it Freight Desk. That's the part of the company where the shipping and logistics and all that is ordered. Uh, And we operated for about a year. We um, acquired another company and then were profitable. But the venture capital guys, we weren't going to make a billion dollars, and so they're looking at, oh, well, let's see, how can we knock them over? And we wouldn't let them knock us over. We weren't bankrupt, and we were making money, and we spent their money as fast as we could to keep building the technology, and eventually we did an interesting deal with them that they got um, they got the company we had bought. They got um, We gave them a couple hundred thousand dollars back of the five or six million. Uh, they got some debt, they got a little equity, and then we got the IP, intellectual property, and the brand, which was built around me personally, changed the name eventually. And instead of aiming at the forwarders, or their cus- uh, we decided to aim at their customers. And we relaunched in May of 2001, very bad market, and then 9-11 happened. And I woke up one night, kind of, oh, bleep, 
you could weaponize a container. Weren't you on a flight on the morning of 9-11? Well, I was on a flight uh, the mor- morning of 9-11 to California uh, and by way of Chicago. And I, I got uh, I got on the plane, and and we were put down in Chicago, and they had said they, a plane had hit the World Trade Center, and and they thought it was an accident. You know, a plane had hit the Empire State Building years and years ago, and a uh, little biplane or something. And we, uh, as I'm getting off the plane, I'm looking at the, the TVs, and there was a second plane hitting just then, and I knew this was not an accident. And I had one of these big clunky cell phones, and I immediately called Amtrak, got booked on the next train back to D.C., um, and... Uh, and you know, then had to wait like half a day, 18 hours till it got there, and then it took 18 hours to get back to D.C. It was a terrible experience, but, um, but, uh, so that, and I get back to D.C. and there, are, uh, armored cars all over and and anti-aircraft guns all along the Canal Road and uh, on the waterfront and um, no airplanes flying. You know, they were all put down. Very scary. State of war, basically. And, but that, from from. Uh, from the uh, about it, I, I tried to call my uh, kids and my wife. My wife had gone out to California the day before, before on one of those flights, so she was in San Francisco. And I, it took a long time. I finally got hold of the nanny. We had a live-in nanny at the time. The kids were at school; they were little, and she was able to go over to the school and tell everybody I was fine. And of course, their mother was in California. <clears throat> and my daughter still remembers it. She, you know, they're all scared to death. And she said she just burst out crying. You know, she was like maybe 10 at the time, 12. And then um, my wife, uh, I called her. I finally got a hold of her. She was in San Francisco. And I, she answers the phone. I said, hi, I'm all right. And she says, oh, that's great, dear. <laughs> and, and apparently, you know, I forgot it was three hours difference. And, and then she gets dressed and goes downstairs and... Uh, the guy working for her said, did you see what happened? And she said, no. And he, you know, 9-11. And then she said, oh, my God, now she understood because she knew I was flying to California that morning for a meeting. So, um, so you know, it had a big effect. But about 10 days later, uh, I was back home, and, and I literally woke up in the middle of the night with this, oh, my God, you could use a container to bring weapons a nuclear weapon, something like that, into the United States. Nobody would see it. Nobody would know. And there was a popular book, a, a Clancy book at the time, about a nuclear weapon came in a refrigerator. And I, I had not read that at that point. And it was snuck into the stadium in Baltimore and blew up. And the president was there. And there was a movie made of that later. But so, and these are containers on the massive ships that yeah, you see. Yeah, ocean containers. Yep. And, you know, they come from everywhere. And, they they would check the the largely non digital, but going electronic. They would check the manifests and this and that, and and they would inspect some but not many. You know, we have you something can inspect them all. We have right, forty million containers or so floating around there, and and every ship, uh, one of these big ships, will hold fifty thousand documents. So, I I remember testifying to. Uh, before the Congress, the Democrats in charge, and Senator Lieberman, I, I said, and each ship is some 50,000 documents to check through, and they're all paper. And Lieberman says, Commissioner Quartel, can you say that again? 50,000 documents, paper? And I said, yes. And they need to be digitized. And 
and it needs to be automated, and we cannot inspect all these 40 million containers. It would, it, it would just drive the economy to zero since 20 to 25% of the economy was based on international trade, still is. So the, uh, so the solution, so I got up, and I had been on the Army Science Board uh, studying both of the Gulf Wars, and the, uh, I called one of my friends there, and he they jumped on it. You know, they convened a meeting in two days of all the three-letter agencies and State Department and Coast Guard and Customs, and spent two days at the uh, out at the uh, Army, um, uh, one of the um, um, the colleges over here, and and decided that it was unlikely to be bioterrorism. Uh, they could do that other ways. It could be weapons. Could be a nuke. And uh, then I spent the next six months trying to sell it in to the government. And, that, and the concept was that you cannot physically inspect everything, but you can use the data to target it, to figure out what's a high-risk cargo. And you want to know where it came from, who touched it, who paid for it, these kinds of things. So, uh, you know, from a purely intellectual standpoint, uh, I don't always get all the credit for that. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, one of these, uh, I've forgotten the name, the author, um, um, is, he's a lawyer who writes about a lot of interesting topics, wrote a book on all this stuff, and he credited another friend of mine, Steve Flynn, who, in fact, was very creditable for the physical aspect of security, the being able to run the port and lock all that down. So I was on the data side, and he was on the physical side, and he, he and I would frequently testify together, credited him with the whole thing. Well, he, you know, he would say, no, that was Rob's. And, and then the then-commissioner, People have credited him with it, but it took six months to sell it to him. But he, in the end, he did kind of embrace it. And so the idea is that you would create an electronic border. And all trade <coughs> originates with an American customer. So you really want to control the American customer and make him control his foreign sources. And, um, and that's conceptually different than people think of, too. They assume it comes from overseas. That's where you start. Well, no, you start here. Nothing comes here without an originator here. And so now a um, uh, very small percentage of cargoes are physically inspected. Uh, that became a political football in 2004 and eight. And again, you know, the Democrats, and it was the Democrats, uh, and uh, would talk about, well, we only inspect a small percentage. We need to raise that and inspect everything. Well, we are inspecting everything. We're inspecting the data, which is actually more accurate than the, than the physical inspection, unless you know what you're looking for specifically and you know it's there. And, and the best example of that is a, a suitcase is between two and four cubic feet of space. And when they go through the screeners, at TSA scanners there, that they historically, it's been in the 30 percent. Um, uh, they miss about 30 percent of what they're supposed to be catching. I don't know if it still is today. So if you think about a container, which is not four cubic feet, but eight by eight by, t by 40, that's, it's impossible. Your probability of finding something, unless you know it's likely there, is zero. But in any case, so... Uh, and ironically, the company never benefited from any of that. We never had any business with customs. We, we, uh, who, who were the customers? We had Homeland Security um, and uh, Naval Intelligence was our first customer. They had had a, the USS Cole was hit by a pontoon boat filled with sure. explosives, and they wanted more um, to be able to see kind of what was around them. And, um, and our, our expertise was gathering the data, doing the data model, and then applying the analytics to it. 
so Food and Drug is, has, been, has been a big client. We have a big predictive system over there, Predict, and so on and so forth. But today, and that company now is about 19 years old, 18, and we've zigzagged. So we've done three or four major turns. We're actually completing another turn right now away from the federal government. We turned towards the federal government then, and now we're trying to get away from it. You know, it's, it's a terrible environment for small companies, unless you're minority or, or veteran-owned small business, which we are not. Um, we're small business, but not either of those categories. And, um, and that in itself is another whole quite, you know, conversation about whether that's a good system or bad. But, um, and then the big companies are basically pushing all those sub, subcontracts into what you call butts and seats, which are, they just, it's a labor business. It's not content. And so, you know, we made a decision about three years ago, get out of that. And, and now we've recently productized uh, our, our government solutions. And we're, uh, we, uh, uh, one of my friends said uh, uh, that I had fired myself. So, so I, I brought in a new CEO who has experience in SaaS, what you call SaaS, sure. uh, you know, as a service, channel and sales marketing, uh, partner marketing. So, so is, and this is Antelix. Yeah. Are, are you still uh, reviewing the, the shipping coming in? Um, we have actually never reviewed any of the shipping coming in. Okay. So we have always been on the, uh, on the side of, a, a cargo coming, so uh, but it's it's not the ship. It's all the data associated with like right, so right, food right. and drug, for example, um, it, it screens all food, drugs, and medical devices that are imported, and so we have a system predict which has thousands of rules and algorithms, which is used to take that data plus other data now and 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 uh, decide whether this is. Um, should be let into the country or sent to an inspector or denied entry, and then the system actually makes a decision and pulls the lever and lets them go. So it's that kind of thing. But we've never done, you know, in customs, um, uh, I, I remember being on a platform with uh, uh, Rob Bonner, who was then the head of customs, and he's in front of 500 people at the Chamber of Commerce, and, and they... Uh, he was talking about how great customs was, and they were a partner. And and there's an expression they use, which I've forgotten the expression, but uh, it's meant to imply that they're your friend. And um, and I got up afterwards, and I just said, "Wait, is there anybody in this room who thinks the government is going to help them get through this?" And the room just applauded, and he turns beet red, and and. We never. They would call us up every six months and suck everything out of us, and then have IBM do it. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, it, it's it's such a cool business because it touches pretty much everyone in the country, yeah. right? And yeah. it's but it's out of out of sight, out of mind. Totally. But it's so it's totally. it's so important. Yeah. Totally. So, last two questions for you because I know mm-hmm. you got to get going. Any translation of the skills from your early career when you did when you worked on campaigns, ran your own campaign because those are kind of mm-hmm. entrepreneurial mm-hmm. ventures. Yep, totally. How did that apply? And then the last thing is, did you have an objective to get to where you are today? Because <laughs> um, you definitely zigged and zagged. Um, well, it's a long way from being an astronaut. So if I had an objective, that's not where it was. I think it was always, I think I'm personally driven by uh, a need to be able to do something that has some importance. I mean, you know, I spent a lot of my time now working with startup companies. And started, a, in fact, an, uh, a venture fund. Uh, I went to Yale for graduate school, as I said earlier, and I started a venture fund for Yale um, st- alumni 
to and faculty and others to invest in Yale alumni, faculty, and others in startups. It's a, it's a microfund, but it was the first I'd ever had. And I'm involved in Virginia. The, the Center for Innovative Technology is the Commonwealth of Virginia's um, arm for investing in commercial startups and involved with that. And I'm on that board and, and spent a lot of time with startups. So I, th to me, that's really important. I've, you know, I've gotten involved with broadband, which is one of our missions. We Something like 65 70% of the land area in Virginia has no access to, to broadband or much less cell phone. And I'm now living on a small island in the Chesapeake Bay where some people can get it and some people have access uh, potentially, but they don't want to spend $28,000 to run a line. And some people ha have potential access, but the company won't get it to them at any price. And so, um, you know, the, the Commonwealth has a new program, $20 million a year for 10 years um, uh, to get broadband around the Commonwealth. But that's a whole generation of kids, and we know that kids – uh, who don't have access to broadband in their daily lives, not just at school, just way lag. Oh, Other kids, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. So involved in a lot of those things. So I'm. I don't know that I would have predicted any of this. Um, other than the fact that I really don't like having bosses. So that's a common theme in most of this. Um, and the uh, your other question though was. How do you translate the oh, uh, the campaign experience? To the well, private I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think uh, campaigns are. Um, Campaigns are both management enterprises and, you know, it's accounting, and, but it's also sales and marketing and communications, and those things are two-way streets. You know, it's like a public sector organization. But you're right, it's a startup, and I would say I've done startups my whole life. I've done um, three campaigns for myself. I've done several presidential campaigns for all stars. I've been in several government agency startups. I've started up several companies myself. I've been involved with startups. Um, uh, uh, going to Yale was that was a startup. So, I, I do think that people have different <laughs> different skills and things that drive them. And I think, uh, of course, what drives me is the ability uh, to actually uh, stop talking about something, go do it. And uh, of course, I find in, there's so many projects I have on my deck. I'm right now I'm talking about a lot of <laughs> and and uh, getting them started is another thing too. I started writing. I'm doing some other things like that. So, so the question is, can you get uh, things going and then hand them to other people to have them run them on a day to day basis? So. Awesome. Well, do you want to give a plug to your podcast? Because I know that you. Oh yeah. You well, well, I think you know we uh, had a funny uh, run in. Um, about two years ago, a year and a half ago, with a guy, uh, I was kicked off the train in Philadelphia during a blizzard um, on my way to for a board meeting at Yale, and and I'm start talking to this young guy, and and he, um, I was driving back to Washington. We knew we the train would not be doing it, so the next morning he and I drove back to D.C. and talked all the way down. It turns out he's a libertarian radio, a well-known DJ, and and he drops me off the condo and says. Um, wow, you've got a lot of experiences in Washington from a very different perspective. I've been thinking about a podcast called Explaining the Swamp. <clears throat> so he and I have begun a series, um, and it's sort of random, and uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out how to do this on a regular basis. We have about six of them, but it's called Expl Explaining the Swamp, and we talk about everything from EPA to uh, Jones Act to politics to Trump. You know, the, uh, I think one of the big failures of this administration – aside from all the histrionics, is is if you really want to drain the swamp, you need to have people in charge who know how to pull a plug. 
and there's so many key positions across this government that are not filled. Um, so if you're on one side, you can say, thank God, you know, thank goodness for the, you know, the, the deep state because they keep things running even when things are all screwed up on uh, the other side. But it's, if you want to change things, you need to put people in charge, and they really have not done that. And so I think what they've changed is minimal, and it's a missed opportunity for that side and you know, a, a positive moment for the other. Sure. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to check out Rob's podcast, Explaining the Swamp. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, totally. Enjoyed it.